We are uh, in the midst of a series, we skipped last week, but we are in the midst of a series called The Good Life, in which we're walking through Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. And today we come to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. We're going to read that, go ahead and get into that, and then we'll get into our lesson. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, And tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I heard a story about uh, four boys, a family with four boys, and they had gone to church. They went to church every Sunday, but they had gone to church this particular Sunday. And the preacher was preaching out of the text that we just read from here in Matthew chapter 5. And so the preacher's talking about turning the other cheek and how no matter what people may do to you, whatever you do, don't retaliate. Don't try to get even. That's not what God calls us to do. So later on that afternoon, the kids are outside playing, and uh, the little boy, the youngest little boy, comes back in, and he's crying. He says, Mom, I was playing outside, and Johnny, one of the older brothers, Johnny kicked me in the shin. And Mom said, well, what did, what did you do? And she said, well, I, I kicked him in the shin first. And she said, well, honey, you can't go around kicking people in the shin. I mean, that's, that's not what you're supposed to do. And he said, yeah, but preacher said he's not supposed to kick me back, right? You know, so... Um, Um, You know, it's interesting. The reality is that we are always a lot more interested in holding others accountable for Jesus's words, especially when it comes to what he says here, than we are of holding ourselves accountable for Jesus's words, aren't we? I think that's just the reality of things. Now, remember where we are in the flow of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is giving us six real-life examples of what it looks like to have a righteousness that's not just an external behavioral righteousness, but one that comes from the inside out. It comes from the heart. It's lived out of, of here and out of a relationship and out of an attitude more than just for an outside observable uh, righteousness. A righteousness that, as he talks about uh, in the early part of chapter 5, that surpasses that of the Pharisees. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. And so far in our series, so far in our last few lessons, Jesus has talked about anger murder, lust, adultery, marriage, divorce, integrity, honesty. And today we come to Jesus's words and his teachings on what it means to have an inside-out righteousness when it comes from, that it comes from the heart, when it comes to relating to people who have done us wrong, times when we've been done wrong, times when, when we have been imposed upon and others have imposed themselves on us. Now let me say a few things right off the bat, uh, just to kind of clarify things as far as what Jesus' words are not saying or what some have taken them to say uh, that I think are important to address, at least off the, uh, at the beginning. Uh, first, some have taken Jesus' words here, taken this passage in particular, to mean that Christians shouldn't try and address or fight against social injustices and evils, institutional evils, that we, we should just leave those alone, you know, we, we should just let those, let those go. Um, that's, that's not our responsibility. I do think, let me say this, I do think here Jesus is talking more about how we respond to times when we are done wrong more than times when others are done wrong and, and responding on behalf of others during those times. But that being said, that doesn't mean that Jesus lets us off the hook. 
I don't think this passage is talking about that either way, but I do think there are plenty of other passages that speak to our responsibility as Christians to fight for justice, to fight against evil and beha- on behalf of others, and fight against injustices on behalf of other people. There are plenty of other passages that speak to you and I's responsibility to do those things and to confront those things. And there are certainly principles that we can take from this passage that I think, that I think speak into those um, into the context of those situations and how we confront them. I just don't think that's the primary focus that Jesus is talking about here that he has in mind in this particular passage. Secondly, I don't believe this passage is teaching um, that we are prohibited from self-defense in times when people are or someone is attacking us and physical attack. We'll talk more about this in just a moment, but when Jesus talks about slapping, uh, your version may say striking, Um, I don't know if there's any other versions, but basically striking or slapping. Striking, we tend to think of more of a physical assault, but really slapping is a better word for what, um, what, what Jesus is getting across here. It's really meant to be more of an insult than it is a physical attack or a physical assault. It's worth noting, though, that there is, in fact, a provision in the Old Testament law um, for people to defend themselves in times of danger. But that being said, there are also parameters put on that. So you can read in places like Exodus chapter 22, uh, verses 2 and 3 that talk about that, but there's parameters put on that. And so it's not just a free-for-all to defend yourself in any way you want, but there is at least a clause to be able to do that to a certain degree. And then thirdly, when Jesus speaks of someone wanting to sue us and then us giving, their, uh, giving them our uh, shirt and our coat as well, some have seen this as a prohibition against defending ourselves in a court of law or legal matter, a lawsuit. Again, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. I don't think that's what he's addressing here. If you read it, Jesus says, if someone wants to sue you. Um, So I think if anything, Jesus really is giving counsel for how to um, how to do this before you get sued, not necessarily what you do after you get sued. Um, and, and, And giving your shirt, giving your coat as well addressing it before you ever get down, uh, get down that path. And we'll talk about that in just a moment as well. But if you remember, uh, just to give a little side note, even the Apostle Paul, he's about to be un, uh, unfairly punished. He exerts his rights as a Roman citizen to a trial. So it's not that God's prohibiting it. Uh, he's just saying, Jesus is just saying, don't even let it get there. If you can, don't even let it get there. Now, you say, well, why do you bring all this up? Why, why mention all of the, the, these things? Well, I, I, I mention them to give some context, and my purpose in mentioning them is not to take the teeth, pun intended, out of what Jesus is, have, is, is saying here, because there is plenty of teeth in it, I promise you that. But rather, I think it's for the purpose of hope, hopefully helping us to see his teaching in its proper context. So that being said, let's see it in its proper context and listen to what Jesus has to say. And here's what he starts off. He starts off by saying, You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, Jesus is addressing one of the more popular uh, verses that we read in the Old Testament, one of the more popular quoted verses that we still hear even today. We find it three different times in the Old Testament law, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. It was called the law of retaliation. And it was applied in situations where there was physical harm done or there was property damage done. And what it basically, how it, how it worked is that the one who did the damage could suffer up to the point of what that damage was done, but no more than that damage. So if you did something to someone, you, you could, 
you could punish, you, that person could be punished up to that extent, but no more than that extent. Or if the da- damage was done, then it could be up to that damage, but no more than that damage. Eye for eye, hence the, the term eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Here's the deal, though. This law was revolutionary in the Middle East. That's where it's, it's important for us to see kind of the context of, of what we read, because sometimes we read, well, I mean, we kind of get that idea in our day and age, but in the Middle East, in, that, in the ancient Middle East, this was revolutionary in so many ways, namely because the injury or the damage done, again, could not exceed, to the one who did the damage in the first place, could not exceed what was done to the person damaged. Does that make sense? That's a whole lot of damaging. So the person who did the damage couldn't get punished more than the damage that they did. I feel like I'm repeating myself a little bit. Hopefully you get the idea, right? I've ride tooth for tooth. It couldn't exceed that damage that was done. And again, that was so unique in the ancient Middle Eastern culture. It's one of the things that set God's people apart in that culture because retaliation was being limited by God. You couldn't just go willy-nilly however you wanted to and, and retaliate in whatever ways and however uh, way you wanted to. There was a limit. And yes, the one who caused the damage had to suffer, but they couldn't suffer any more damage than what they had inflicted. It's God's way of basically saying, make sure the punishment fits the crime, but make sure it doesn't exceed the crime. So why is this a big deal? Well, because in that culture and even in our day and age, the nature of retaliation is escalation, right? That, that's the nature of retaliation. And so you, you push me and I hit you, right? You hit me and I hit you twice. You hit me twice and, you know, I hit you twice and you come back at me harder. And then I, you know, you, you, you know, it, it's it, the nature of retaliation is to escalate. You know, if you have kids or you have ever been a kid, which would apply to all of us in one of those areas, then you know, this is true, right? A sibling does something to us, what are we going? We're going full bore. I don't have to t- tell you about how my kids handle those things, right? They're, they're great kids, right? They'd never retaliate on each other. Um, but no, the nature of retaliation is to escalate. Whatever you did to me, our nature is to retaliate even stronger. And so eye for eye and tooth for tooth, when God laid that down, he was really setting up guardrails for retaliation. Kind of parameters for how we can respond when we've been done wrong or damaged in some way because he knows that if retaliation goes unchecked and we know this if retaliation goes unchecked that his people would wind up strapping themselves to a never-ending escalator of revenge and retaliation and in the end that's going to destroy us right in the end it only destroys us from the inside out it's also important to note Here's what's kind of one of the things that gets left behind when we talk about eye for eye and tooth for tooth. In all three of the passages in the Old Testament that talk about this idea of eye for eye and tooth for tooth, it's in the context of a judge deciding what to do, right? It's never in the context of if you harmed me, I get to decide what the punishment should be. It's always mitigated by a judge and a court, and then the judge and the court, the justice system, is the one who carries out the punishment. In other words, it's not the victim getting retaliation, it's the justice system. But by the time Jesus comes along, they were taking an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and using that line to carry out personal vendettas and vengeance every time someone did something to them that they didn't like. 
And it had become a mantra for revenge and something that people ran to as a first response anytime they were imposed upon or anytime they were done wrong. I'm going to get my pound of flesh, right? When originally God intended or never intended eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth to be used as an excuse for vigilante justice that the victim just gets to carry out however and whenever they want. Nor did God intend for it to be taken as a command for vengeance, right? It just, it's not dissimilar to what we talked about in, in adultery. Just because that's happened doesn't mean God's saying you have to get a divorce, right? And just because you have been taken advantage of or you've been done wrong or you've been imposed upon doesn't mean that you have to take vengeance and retaliation, Some were saying, I'm commanded to take vengeance. I'm commanded to take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's what God said, right? And so I I don't have a choice. It's not my fault. Blame God. I've got to take my pound of flesh. I've got to take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But God never intended for it to be that way. As with the old, other Old Testament laws that Jesus is dealing with in the Sermon on the Mount, this one was being taken out of context and misapplied in so many ways. Because here's the deal. I mentioned this first part a little bit earlier. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth was meant to be a guardrail. Meant to be a guardrail for when things went terribly wrong and great damage was suffered, but was never meant to be our primary navigational guidance system. It was never meant to be our go-to when things go wrong, when we're done wrong. It's never meant to be like, that's my first response, is eye for eye and tooth for tooth. It was never meant to be the standard of righteousness when it comes to how we relate to people who hurt us or do us wrong, meaning that the righteous thing to do, the just thing to do, well, maybe it is a just thing to do, but the righteous thing to do is to get your pound of flesh. That's, 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 what you, that, that's the right thing to do. At best, the law was a guardrail to keep people from going over the edge and destroying themselves and destroying others. But it not, it's not going to, I mean, think about this. It's not going to bring healing, right? It may bring a measure of satisfaction, but it's never going to bring healing and transformation. And remember, Jesus' aim isn't just to avoid destruction. His aim is to bring healing and hope and transformation. And it's going to take more than guardrails to bring healing and hope and transformation. It's going to take people learning how to drive differently, right? The guardrails can only keep you so much on the road. But to really truly bring healing and transformation, it's going to take people learning to drive differently. And so Jesus gives some illustrations to show what he's talking about. What does it mean to have a heart that rises above eye for eye and tooth for tooth living? And the first thing he says is in verse 39. He says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Now, let me just do an illustration. I thought about having somebody come up here, but I'll just... I'll just, hopefully you can get the point as I'm. So imagine that you're standing across from me and I'll, I'll imagine that you're slapping me. I'm not gonna slap anybody, okay? It's my birthday though. You probably shouldn't slap me on my birthday. Um, but imagine you're standing across from me, okay? Jesus talks about us slapping or being slapped on or someone slapping us on the right cheek, okay? Well, in order for me to slap or you to slap me on the right cheek, my right cheek is on your left, Right? So in order for you to slap me on my right cheek, you can't slap me this way with your right hand. 
you would either have to do a backhand or slap me with your left hand. Does that make sense? You with me so far? You would say, well, why wouldn't I just slap you with my left hand? Well, one of the biggest reasons is you took care of most of the time personal hygiene with your left hand. You didn't greet people with your left hand. You didn't shake hands with your left hand. Um, we won't go too deep into that. I Hopefully you get the point. So if you were going to slap someone on their right cheek, almost always it's going to be a backhand. Does that make sense? So think about that. When you backhand someone, it's less of a strike. It's more of a, 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 a it's what you're saying. You're sending a message in that, right? Of, of one-upsmanship, of, of superiority, of, of, you know, I'm better than you. I'm dominating you. I'm, I'm superior to you. I'm insulting you. And so either way, even if you op- open hand slap me with your left hand, backhand me with your right hand, hey, you're rude. You shouldn't do that. You know, it's just mean, but especially on my birthday. But the, the, you're, you're sending message more of that type of insult than you are necessarily striking me. And my face isn't hurting nearly as much as my ego, right? Because you're insulting me. And so Jesus says, what do you do in those situations? You turn the other cheek. Of course, in reality, again, you could use the left hand and and strike me in that way. But Jesus is, again, not talking about a a strike as in a a physical assault, but but how we respond to those insults and those those times when we've done wrong. And even more than that, Jesus says, don't resist an evil person. That word for resist carries with it like a a combative um, sense. It's really meant to convey a a soldier in one-on-one, hand-to-hand combat. You think about some relationships maybe that you've been in that could be described in those ways, right? It's a word that, that carries with it that context. And so in essence, Jesus is saying, don't violently or combatively resist an evil person, but rather turn the other cheek, right? That's hard. Turn the other cheek. And we say, why? Why would we do that? Especially in our culture. That's not how we respond, right? Even Even God says, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, right? Well, that's what Jesus is addressing. Why would we do that? What good does that do? Well, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Let's move on to the next illustration. (coughs) Verse 40, Jesus says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. In the Old Testament law, if I borrowed something from you, then you as the creditor were allowed to come take something from me as collateral, even up to the shirt on my back. But the one thing you could not take is my cloak, my coat or my cloak. Some translations may say cloak. And if you read through the Old Testament law, part of the reason why they said that is because it could be used at night to kind of keep me warm. It was kind of the last result. That's the one thing you could not take. If I'm poor and that's all I had, that's the one thing you could not take. But Jesus says, somebody wants to sue you and they want to take the shirt off your back. Don't even stop there willingly hand over your coat as well. That thing that's protected by the law that they can't take, go ahead and willingly hand it over as well. Again, why? Why would we do that? We'll talk more about that in just a moment as well. Then he gives another illustration, verse 41. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. There's another backstory to this as well. In the Roman Empire, which ruled the Middle East at that time, any person could be required to carry a Roman soldier's gear for a mile. Didn't, if you're walking down the road, you got three goats with you and a you know, trailer full of stuff. If they said, carry my gear, 
you had to carry, you had to put down what you had and carry their gear or carry it along with you. You were required by Roman law to carry the gear of a Roman soldier for at least one mile. And you had to serve that Roman soldier. That was law. Now, can you imagine the kind of salt in the wound that would be for a Jewish person who is, I mean, the, the Romans are their enemies. They're, in, they're, they're, you know, basically under Roman law. They're, they're not enslaved per se, but it's about that, what tantamount to that. When Jesus says, if they force you to go one mile, you don't just stop at one mile. You actually go another mile. Why? Why would I do that? Rome was their enemy. And he's saying that if you're forced to go one mile, you should go another mile. Like, I don't even want to go one mile, but I'm definitely stopping at one mile, right? So what's going on? Again, what is Jesus up to here? Well, here's what he's up to. And let me be clear, okay? Let me be clear with, with this. Uh, it's a, kind of a long statement, but I, uh, hopefully I can be clear with this. Jesus is not, okay? He is not calling us to lay down in the face of evil. He's not calling us to lay down and be a doormat when things are done wrong to us or when we're imposed upon or when we don't like something, whatever it may be, whatever happens to us. That is not at all what Jesus is saying. What he is saying very definitively and very clearly is that he is calling us to bow down to his strategy for overcoming evil. Now, I know this is hard because we live in a day and age where we like to live out eye for eye and tooth for tooth. We may not like a whole lot of what the Bible says, but I guarantee you this is one of the things we do like that it says. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And Jesus is not, again, not telling us, lay down, take it, you know, be a doormat. He's saying, let me give you a different way. Let me give you a better way. In every example Jesus gives, on the surface, it seems like he's calling us to lay down and give in when evil is being done to us. But in reality, he's talking about how we are going to overcome evil, how he's going to overcome evil through us by how we respond to it. And I think this is some of what Jesus, or some of what Paul is saying, I think this teaching of Jesus is some of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 12. We're not going to dive in too much of this because we just don't have time, but I think this is some of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 12. Here's what he says. He says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. By the way, um, we're not going to have time to get into all of that. Just know that we like to take that out of context a whole lot and, and really pray for, you know, beatdowns on people who do us wrong. I, that's not all that what Paul is saying there, okay? Again, we don't have time to get into all of that this morning. If you want to talk more of that, we spend some time on Wednesday nights together in Bible study, so there's a little plug for that. Come and join us and talk about it. Uh, hopefully we'll get into it. But on the contrary, Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Again, another one we take out of context. Um, but do not, over, do not be overcome by evil, which is a lot of the time what happens when you retaliate. But rather, overcome evil with good. And some of what Paul is saying in not repaying evil with evil is that we're actually looking out for the one 
who has done us wrong. Because we're called to live differently, right? We're called to be different. And just like Jesus, Paul isn't calling us to just lay down in the face of evil, lay down when we're done wrong, but rather, in many ways, we're overcoming evil. And we say, again, back to the questions, how in the world am I overcoming evil by doing this? Well, let's go back to Jesus' illustrations. Instead of retaliating when someone insults us or demeans us or dishonors us, we turn the other cheek. Now, what happens when we do that? Well, they may actually stop doing it out of sheer shock in our culture that somebody actually didn't retaliate, right? I mean, just on a service level, that's what we're so used to, that when we do something wrong or someone does something wrong to us, we respond. That's what we do. And we escalate in our retaliation. And so they may just be so shocked that they don't continue because I don't know how to respond when somebody doesn't respond in kind. But what if they don't stop? Because that also happens too, right? What if they continue to insult and demean and dishonor us? Well, then they are exposed. Their thirst for one-upsmanship and and superiority and domination becomes all the more exposed to the people around who see who they truly are. Are. For example, perhaps no teaching of Jesus was more instrumental in how the civil rights movement proceeded than this one that we are studying from this morning. Martin Luther King Jr. referred to this teaching more than any other when it came to how people of color should contend for their rights in the 60s. And he maintained that demonstrations should be peaceful and nonviolent, even in the face of violence that was done to them. And he wanted very little, if anything at all, to do with violent resistance. Or, or, I don't want to get into that. He he really didn't want anything to do with violent resistance because he didn't believe that was the way to resist evil. Now, think about what happened, okay? Think about what happened in in, in the 60s. What turned the tide of our national consciousness when it came to these issues? Was it simply, and again, we've still got a long way to go, but what, what started to turn the tide? Was it simply Lyndon B. Johnson's legislation that just kind of changed everything and, you know, made it all better? I mean, that played a part. But in the end, what really turned the tide of people's consciousness was people who on their television screens and then their newspapers saw houses and churches being burned, fire hoses being turned on demonstrators and and, and, and protesters, violence being done to black people. And yet, all the while, King and his leadership are responding in nonviolent ways. Responding peacefully. They turn the other cheek. They wound up exposing all of that violence because they didn't return that in kind. All the evil, all the racism, all the more of those who were opposing the civil rights movement. Because what America began to see was mostly a bunch of white people in the deep south being continually abusive and violent and and racist towards people of color. And yet, for the most part, these leaders of this civil rights movement were responding pretty much nonviolently. And pretty soon people's opinions began to change. Because turning the other cheek only exposed the other side's prejudice and racism and violence all the more. Of course, there were people who would say to King, you're just laying down in the face of injustice. I mean, you're just taking it. Why, 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 you know, stand up. Why, why are you doing this? In fact, that was Malcolm X's biggest problem with, with King. But King said, I'm not laying down. I'm not laying down in the face of evil and injustice. I'm overcoming evil and injustice by turning the other cheek. 
And that's a radical example. And listen, it didn't solve all the problems. I'm not saying it's going to solve every problem. And every person that's done something wrong to you is going to all of a sudden see the light and they're going to have, you know, be, be exposed and everything. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is this is what Jesus calls us to do. And it's radical. And it's different. But it does work. Jesus doesn't tell us to do things that don't work. It's hard. But this is very serious teaching that Jesus has given us. And the same can be said in Jesus' next illustration of someone wanting to sue us. He says, don't even wait to go to court. He says, go ahead and give them your shirt and your coat. Why? Well, for one, again, it could expose them. You're left with nothing, them with everything of yours. But even more than that, I think it says we're people of grace. Like we're people who show grace, even in the face of grace not being shown to us. Because after all, it's not really grace if we're showing it to people who deserve it, right? Then it just becomes justice. That we want to do more than just not do what's wrong, even more than do what is right and making things right, but we want to bless even those who are out to harm us. Talking about shutting down the escalator of vengeance and retaliation when you do that. And what about Jesus' illustration of someone forcing us to go one mile and us going two? You don't think that would get a Roman soldier's attention? They knew a mile. And you keep going? No questions asked? I mean, you're, you, you get the mile and you're still carrying on their, their travel gear. All of a sudden, what was a show of oppression and power is now being equalized right there. And maybe you even start exchanging stories. Maybe you don't, but maybe you do. And the Jewish person becomes more of a human being in the eyes of that Roman soldier. And the Roman soldier becomes more of a human being in the eyes of of that Jewish person. And it's interesting to note that after the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 8, we have a Roman centurion showing up, asking Jesus to heal his servant, and he even calls Jesus Lord. I wonder why he called him Lord. Could it be that Jesus' followers were already practicing this turning the other cheek and this second mile living, and that it captivated him so much that he comes to Jesus and actually submits to him, calls him Lord. Or what about Mark chapter 15? The first confession you have of Jesus at the cross was by a Roman soldier. Surely he was the son of God, he says. Do you think he just got to that confession, like at the cross? Or could it be that he saw how Jesus and his followers were operating up to that moment and through that moment? And so in AD 33, yes, Rome crucifies Jesus. In, in, uh, 80 chapter, or in AD 70, yes, Rome sacks Jerusalem, destroys Jerusalem, burns it down. But by the fourth century, the Roman Empire, the same one that burned Jerusalem, crucified Jesus, considered itself a Christian nation. Now, there's layers to that, and I'm not going to get into all of that, but they recognized Christianity as, their, as, as the, the state's religion. I mean, I don't know what else you would call overcoming other than that. And this isn't just some 
pie-in-the-sky, idealistic teaching that Jesus is giving us, when the rubber of faith meets the road of reality and begins to be lived out, there is so much power here. You want to talk about letting our light shine, as Jesus talks about earlier in the Sermon on the Mount? This is what it means to let our light shine. You want to talk about letting your light shine? Live like no one else. Live like no one else. If you live like anybody else, your light doesn't look any different. You want to let your light shine. Live like no one else. Live out what Jesus is teaching here when people impose themselves on you and do you wrong. Because again, what Jesus is talking about isn't some laying down doormat way of operating in the face of evil and things being done to us. It's a strategy to overcome it. And it's a strategy that Jesus himself lived out in the way he lived and ultimately in the way he died. And if you're thinking, because you might be, you probably you're thinking one of two things. One, I don't want to. <laughs> That's natural. Um, maybe the other thing you're thinking too is, I don't, I don't know if I have this in me. Like, <laughs> How do I do this? To which I would say, welcome to the club. You don't have it in you. Because none of us have it in us. But again, remember the very first words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who realize they don't have what it takes in and of themselves. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the resources of the kingdom of heaven have come near to all of us who realize this, that we don't have what it takes to live this thing out. We have all the power we need, but it's not inside of us. It's beyond us. But by God's spirit, it can come within us and make a difference through us to be delivered out of us that can ultimately change the world around us.